can we, uh, what's your estimate of when we can get out of there as the main military force? I think talking about when you can get out is an absolute mistake. Within you never this room. talk about Within this room. Yeah, right. 100,000 of my closest. <laughs> look, 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 the key to all this, the key to all this is there are two or three things that have to happen. At some point, you have to let the bicycle go and the Iraqi security forces have to take responsibility for the major portion of the engagement. The second thing that has to happen, and we see the seeds of it happening today, is there has to be a meaningful inclusion of the Sunni minority in the political process. They saw an election go by. They understand they didn't play. They want to be in on the drafting of the Constitution. And at some point, what has to happen is Iraqis have to take charge of their own country. If you talk about it, until you deal with this fellow Zarqawi in an insurgency which is domestically based, you know, you really can't go down that road. But the face, the American face kicking the door down is not an image you can sustain forever. Okay, the, the, when I, I want to go to the questions right this. I watched the Middle East, and we've been watching the Middle East since we were kids, and it's always been a problem. Right. And you've got Israel there, which is bothersome, uh, uh, putting it lightly to the Arab, Arabs around. Right. If you look at the new Arab leaders, yeah. Sif Qaddafi coming along, you've got Mubarak's kid coming along, you've got King Abdullah already there, you've got Bashir, uh, Assad. Are that, is the new Western educated leadership of the Arab world going to be any better for us or are they going to be driven around by their uncles and the old crowd? Well, complicated question. Let me, just, let me just back up two steps. If you take a look at the Arab and Muslim world today, we've got a couple of things going on that are really important. The population of the Arab and Muslim world is exploding around us. Let me give you some facts and I'll get to your question. 75% of the Saudi population is under the age of 15. Unemployment runs at about 26%. They have no place to go. A million Iranians come to the workforce every year and there are only jobs for half of them. There are unemployment in the Persian Gulf runs at about 40%. They're adding a million people to their workforce every year and will do so between the year now and 2015 and they have no place to go. These are societies that essentially there's no economic opportunity. They're not part of the globalized world. Their educational systems are badly in need of reform, and their governments have lost, have broken faith with their people. Now, these are also governments, if you look at them, are based on old gerontocracies and family structures that must change. If you look at King Abdullah in Jordan, he is the model for the next generation of Arab leaders. He's got a free trade agreement with the United States. He's opening up his universities. He's got a political process that's becoming more inclusive. If you look at what's going on in the Middle East today, look at the ferment from Syria to Lebanon to Afghanistan. The Palestinians had a peaceful transition and an election. Now, Tom Friedman says it's ironic it's ironic when other Arabs look at it that the two occupied countries, Iraq and Palestine, had elections. And the rest of the Arab, and this is now visually Al Jazeera, Al Arabiya, every medium in the Middle East is now putting this in the living room of Arab publics and they stand up and say, wait a minute, I want better for us too. It is inevitable that we're gonna, there's going to be change. I think we have to watch our rhetoric. You know, Jeffersonian democracy, and let's, 
Look, I'm all for it. Reform, democracy, it's going to happen in each of these societies in a different way with cultural values that are uniquely their own. We need to, mo we need to move them in this direction. But there is, someone said, it's not the Western liberals who's going to defeat al-Qaeda's ideology. It's, it is the liberals in the Islamic world, and they are stronger today than they ever have been. How you manage this, and I don't think the United States can manage it. I think this is a uniquely cultural internal event. But if you look at a guy like Bashar, Bashar has never stood up and met his responsibilities. He's basically surrounded by his father's cronies, although he's made substantial changes in the bureaucracy around him. Bashar's still living in, in the 19th century. He's a minority government in Syria, and Syria is as backward as it gets. So I think what we need to do, when, when you see an Abdullah, or you see the king of Morocco, or you see a young leader emerge, you've got to make him succeed very, very quickly and use all the means at our disposal to help so that Arabs look at role models and say, there's another way to do this. Are you optimistic about the Arab world and its new generation? I, I, am, I am optimistic. I am optimistic because if you look at their talent, and you look at their education, and you look at their, I am optimistic. I think they want something better. And I think that's the other thing. Optimism is a hell of a lot better than cynicism. I think we have to be more optimistic. We have to be more inclusive. And we have to listen a lot more than we do and help these folks along. And recognize, if you're an American, it's not going to develop exactly the way you think it is. You better put on your seatbelt, because there's going to be plenty of instability along the way. First question. from the American University in Cairo. Um, my first was a comment. Um, when you said that the um, problem was perhaps linguistic in the kind of language that was used at the point of um, discussing the weapons of mass destruction, yeah. um, I was just wondering if you can comment on this. I think fundamentally it's more of a problem with the idea of a preemptive war and what that can achieve. Um, and secondly, Okay, let's stop there before you go okay. second. I was the director of central intelligence, not the policymaker. I'm talking about what I wrote. Policy choices they make okay. are not mine. They're theirs. So it's, it's a policy issue about the use of preemption. It's something we're going to have to think through based on this experience. There is no American president in history that's ever foreclosed the option of acting in your own national interest. Preemption is an interesting subject that we have to talk about, but it, it, it had nothing to do with how we wrote what we wrote, okay? It's their decision-making process, not, not, not the intelligence decision-making process. Okay. And my second point was, um, when you use Iraq's elections as an example, yeah. I'm just wondering, it perhaps is ironic that they're the country having elections, but how successful do you see those elections being in the future, well, in terms of how the situation stands now? Well, as I read the situation, um, you now have the Sunnis forming an umbrella party because they want to participate in the political process. The Kurds and Shias participated in pretty large numbers given the security situation. I mean, it was startling. I don't think anybody would have predicted that you would have had the turnout that you had in Iraq on that day. In the face of the violence they experienced, what the Iraqi people seem to be saying, we're taking our country back. Very powerful message to the world. Now, Sustainability, where does the process go? How do the Kurds, the Shias, and the Sunnis? Well, you know what? When I read the papers, it sounds like it's Chicago a little bit. Everybody's in the black room doing deals. They want to play. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. Thank you. 
Hi, um, my name is Bilal Siddiqui. I'm uh, researching in at a think tank in Washington, D.C. Um, Which think tank? It's called the Center for Global Development. Thank you. Kind of uh, the new. My work for the tank. CIA, for all I know. You know, you got to. Try and get, try and get the old boss while he's down. You know. <laughs> By the way, is that one of yours? No. <laughs> right. No. It's not like Air America or something. Like that. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, my my we question. We CNBC too, but I'll tell you that later. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, my question is simply, uh, it, takes, it takes off from the statement that you made early on in your speech, which was um, inspirational, but I also thought a little um, sketchy. Um, well, I would have gone on longer, but, you know, uh, go ahead. No, no, no. The, sketchy, speech, the speech was great. The statement was, uh, imagination is often more important than knowledge. Yeah. Um, and I found myself thinking that, um, given your job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're, alla you're allowed to take a shot. <laughs> but someday you'll actually run something, and then you'll sit in my chair, and someone will say the same thing to you, and you'll want to get up and strangle you. But go ahead. <laughs> but please go ahead. We love each other. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, just, I'm, I'm really glad you're not sitting in that chair right now, actually. Go ahead. Um, I was just thinking that, um, I mean, you made, you made a, a very assertive point right now that there was no um, political pressure whatsoever to have intelligence uh, give the kind of report, the kind of language, and so on and so forth. And whereas, I mean, I, I completely, I have no knowledge uh, about that. I'm just curious to know why it is that an, an, on a number of, any number of occasions, intelligence um, reporting does seem to, at some level, go hand-in-hand uh, hand with the political agenda of a regime. We saw this. You know, we've seen this in, uh, in ages ago in even the Gulf and Tompkins, but now we saw this with uh, the Bush, regime, Bush regime's political agenda and the kind of material that was coming out of intelligence. Oh, let's stop, stop, yeah. stop. I will tell you something. I categorically reject that at any point during my tenure as DCI, we shaped intelligence for either the Clinton administration or the Bush administration. The men and women who work for me if there was the hint that somebody was trying to tell them what to say culturally, would walk out the door in mass and show up in his studio to tell him the story. It is not our culture. How politicians take data and interpret data and assess risk is theirs, but that's not our culture. And the sad thing that's been left in the public domain is as we sat around trying to think about what they wanted to hear and then wrote it, it didn't happen. Nor did the Congress, nor did the committees of the Congress in their elaborate investigation find that it happened, nor will it ever happen. You know, you were probably in grade school when Bob Gates' confirmation hearing took place, and analysts came out of the woodwork in droves to say they had been pressured and manipulated. I'm telling you, it wouldn't work in the culture that we breed. Our integrity is the only thing that we have. When you breach it, you're finished as a professional intelligence officer. If I had a nickel, for every article I briefed in the morning that policymakers didn't want to hear, I'd be a rich man right now. That's not my job to please them. I don't care about their politics, their political party, their elections, or anything else. And I sure as shit wouldn't be sitting here with a rack and WMD saddled around our neck for the rest of our lives 
because we wrote something that we didn't believe was intellectually honest. Here's the difference. We actually believe what we wrote. It's, you know, you make judgments. We believed our judgment. 